Many of us have those stubborn pounds that seem impossible to lose, no matter how good we eat or how hard we work out. My solution is Plush Care. Plush Care is a leading telehealth provider with doctors who are there for you day and night to partner with you in your weight loss journey. They can prescribe FDA-approved weight loss medications like Wagovi and Zepbound for those who qualify. Plus, they accept most insurance plans. To get started, visit plushcare.com slash weight loss. That's plushcare.com slash weight loss. Everyone knows therapy is great for solving problems, but getting therapy has its own problems too, like finding the right therapist, fitting into their schedule, and of course, the cost. Well, BetterHelp can solve those problems. It's totally online and built around your schedule. It's surprisingly affordable, too. Connect with a credentialed therapist by phone, video, or online chat, all from the comfort of your home. Visit BetterHelp.com to learn more and save 10% on your first month. That's BetterHelp, H-E-L-P. Welcome to the Gilded Age and Progressive Era, a podcast about the United States and the world in the late 19th and early 20th centuries. I'm your host, Michael Patrick Cullinane. Welcome back to the show. I couldn't resist reading one of the latest books about Theodore Roosevelt. And if you don't know already, the mustachioed Rough Rider has sucked up quite a bit of my professional interest in the Gilded Age. I have lots of interest in the period, but I've written probably most about him. A couple of books, a couple of articles, and I'm in the process of writing another book about his presidency. I've often thought about books that could be written on Roosevelt, despite there being already hundreds, if not thousands, of them already out there. I'll give you an example. It's been 70 years since Howard Beale's comprehensive account of TR's foreign policies, and so I think we're probably due for a reappraisal there. And I've also had conversations with friends where we voiced our disappointment that books about TR and race relations are not out there. Thomas Dyer's 1980 book, TR and the Idea of Race, is an exceptional book, but it's more about the theories of race and the idea of race and not the policies that Roosevelt pursued. And there are several other books that I can imagine, books about Roosevelt's friends and enemies that would make for an interesting biographical study. And there's some out there already. For example, there's books about Roosevelt and Twain, uh, Roosevelt and the King of England, Roosevelt and Wilson, or Roosevelt and the naval thinker Alfred Mahan. But among Roosevelt's closest friends and his political allies is Henry Cabot Lodge, a fellow author, historian, and aristocratic politician with a progressive small-p tendency. The two are such an interesting character study because their lives span the Gilded Age and Progressive Era. And spoiler alert, they fall into their friendship in the 1880s, they fall out of their friendship in 1912, and then back into their friendship. And I guess if we're talking about their friendship... You know, this is a political one as well as a personal one. It's one where their families are intertwined as well as their party and their policies. Their friendship, as my guest today says, changed American history. Dr. Lauren Sheridan has written The Rough Rider and The Professor, a biography of these two men and their influence in American politics. Lawrence is a professor at Fordham University and at Fairfield University. He's the author of Paving the Way for Reagan, The Influence of Conservative Media on U.S. Foreign Policy, and I'm delighted to welcome him to the show. Welcome, Lawrence. Great to be here, Michael. Thank you so very much for having me on. I'm delighted to have you. Look, I'm going to get straight to it. I'm not going to mess around. Let's start off with the reason we're here. One of Henry Cabot Lodge's greatest accomplishments was getting Theodore Roosevelt into the White House. And I think most of the listeners to this show will know certainly who Roosevelt is, but I, I think they'll certainly know who Henry Cabot Lodge is. Am I right in saying no Henry Cabot Lodge, no President Roosevelt? I wouldn't put it that bluntly. I think that Roosevelt, is, as you well know from, from the scholarship you've done, uh, was an extraordinarily uh, unique figure, both uh, intellectually, uh, you, you could say physically, uh, just in terms of being a unique person. He had tremendous drive and ambition. Uh, contrary to what might have expected, considering the the class that he had he had come from, one could say that he could very easily have been a complacent, somewhat soft character, and he was neither neither the case. Um, I think Lodge accelerated uh, that process. Um, 
Roosevelt, I believe, would have been president at some point because he was so gifted. But Lodge certainly, as I said and say in the book, lit the lit the rocket or guided the rocket to uh, the White House much quicker than he otherwise would have been. Okay, well, I mean, it does seem like in some ways we, when we read history, we think about the end sometimes more than the beginning. But I just want to get that out of the way. Let's start now at the beginning. When do Lodge and Roosevelt first meet? They they meet sporadically. Uh, during uh, TR's time at Harvard. Uh, Lodge is teaching a class uh, on colonial American history. They're both members of the Porcellian Club. Uh, and I think they may have sporadically met at the Porcellian Club, a place that both Lodge and Roosevelt enjoyed spending time. Uh, Roosevelt's first wife, Alice Lee, was a distant cousin of lodges, and they may have met at a reception in Boston uh, during that the engagement uh, process. But they really come to sort of become friendly within the uh, convention and the turbulence of the election of 1884. Uh, both of them are liberal Republicans, one could say somewhat idealistic. Uh, I think Roosevelt perhaps more idealistic uh, then Lodge. They both came together uh, as an attempt to topple the uh, presidential hopes of James G. Blaine, who I'm sure your, your listeners are familiar with, the, the very uh, flamboyant, uh, charismatic, gifted uh, politician from Maine who had been a senator, who had been the Speaker of the House, caught up in the uh, Mobilare scandal, uh, and uh, Roosevelt and Lodge uh, really found Blaine to be an untrustworthy uh, kind of opportunistic uh, figure who neither believed should uh, be the standard bearer of the Republican Party, and they sought to topple him from that uh, precipice, which they were unsuccessful in doing. And in that sort of disaster coming out of the convention in Chicago, this incredible friendship was born, which had extraordinary results uh, for TR as we move through uh, his life and career. I think that 1884 election is so important. I think you you rightly put that as the, the pivot point in the beginning of their relationship. It brings them together. It nearly tears the party apart. It really sets them apart from the more conservative elements in the Republican Party, too. It also sets them out as being, uh, I wouldn't say civil rights radicals, but there's one part of 1884 that does set them apart from uh, conservative uh, Republicans, and that's the election of Congressman John Lynch to the National Convention chair. Uh, how does that bring them together? And I want to talk a little bit about race here. T.R. and Lodge they do have different ideas about race, which have implications for later on on immigration policy. Can you talk us through the Lynch uh, chairmanship in 1884 and then a little bit through on race throughout their lives? Sure. Uh, the Lynch uh, nomination or, or making Lynch the chairman of that convention was really the high point of uh, Lodge and TR's moment uh, at that convention. Uh, the attempt to the the success in making Lynch the chairman of the convention was was really an attempt to kind of try to weaken uh, the Blaine forces. There was the chairman who had previously been uh, considered or was going to be chairman was a, a supporter had switched from one side uh, to the next. He had been the former governor he was governor of Arkansas, a very disreputable individual who I believe claimed he had lost an arm uh, in the Civil War, which was not true. Uh, he shifted uh, from one candidate to the next uh, and uh, promised uh, delegates uh, to this candidate, to that candidate. And of course, Lodge uh, couldn't stand uh, this man and was determined to defeat him. And at one point he says to the, his friends in the delegation, well, if you're not gonna help me, I'm gonna do it by myself. And Roosevelt's like, no, I'm, I'll help you. And so they stand together and they get uh, Congressman Lynch, who initially is unwilling 
uh, to become chairman of the convention, but Lodge and Roosevelt convince him uh, to do that, say they, they need him uh, for the future of the Republican Party. Uh, Lynch agrees to do this, and in an incredible moment uh, in the uh, Chicago auditorium, uh, an, an incredibly tumultuous moment, Lynch is made the chairman. Roosevelt and Lodge make these incredible speeches. Uh, neither one of them are great orators, particularly Lodge, who, as one journalist said, had a voice that sounded like the tearing of a bedsheet, or as Lodge himself said, reminded one of a dentist's drill. And I actually think if you listen to Lodge online, which you can do, he really does, it really does sound like a drill, you know, kind of sounding like that. And um, Lynch is, is successfully uh, made head of the convention. Uh, uh, following up your point on race, this was not done out of the kindness or let's just say liberal views on race by either Lodge nor Roosevelt. Both men, sadly, and, and to their detriment, had a low opinion of African-Americans. They didn't, they believed that they should have the right to vote, but they didn't actually believe they understood uh, the concepts involved in uh, electing uh, representatives and officials. Roosevelt and Lodge had two different views on, on race. Race, uh, Lodge was very, very firm and ideologically rigid on race. He believed, quote, race, is one's destiny. Once you're, uh, whichever uh, nation you come from, whatever cultures you uh, inherit from that uh, race, no, there is no change. That is immutable. No way to move away from that. Roosevelt, a bit more uh, pragmatic in regards to that, believed that environment was the key. Uh, one can learn, one can grow through education personal and individual experience, and one can become more enlightened and more educated and therefore more evolved uh, over time. Lodge uh, completely counter uh, of that. And of course, because so much of, of race was, was ingrained within Lodge, he was so much, uh, so devoted to his family history, so much devoted to a, uh, a certain way of, of viewing things. He very much believed that he had, primarily because of his race, and uh, and uh, ancestry had a natural destiny uh, of controlling and or leading uh, his state and uh, his nation. So that's a, a big part of Lodge's MO, so to speak. I think that's a great way of putting it too. I mean, Lodge uh, will eventually become one of the nation's leading eugenicists and Roosevelt never, never would have adopted such a stance, certainly not in relation uh, to genetics, at least anyway. Uh, okay, so that's a great introduction to their meeting. One of the other things that dominates their early lives and the similarities that they have is that they're both historians. Lodge writes about Washington and Hamilton. Roosevelt actually gets his contract for Thomas Hart Benton, the biography of Benton, through Lodge. But of course, he wrote other biographies before Lodge's intervention and other books as well. Tell us about their intellectual commonalities and perhaps what differences they might have had as historians as well as commonalities? Well, Lodge really was a historian. That's my title, The Rough Rider and the Professor. Lodge really was a professor. He received one of the very early PhDs from Harvard. Uh, he taught uh, history at Harvard, though uh, was not the uh, most, let's just say, compelling professor in the world. As his first class, I believe he had something like 15 to 16 students, which plummeted to about six in, in you know, probably a mere couple, couple of days. Uh, he loved history. He was surrounded by it. Uh, there were many, many prominent historians in Boston who lived nearby, who visited the Lodge home, who had dinner uh, with Lodge's father, uh, John Lodge, and, and visited the family. Lodge was very much influenced to become a historian by Henry Adams, somebody who plays a very prominent part in this book. And again, a character I'm sure your, your listeners are very familiar uh, with. Roosevelt was, let's just say, an, an amateur uh, historian. He loved writing about uh, great figures, great men, great events. Uh, his first work on the War of 1812, on the naval campaigns of the War of 1812, was really something that 
would have caught Lodge's interest very quickly. It was probably one of the things they initially talked about, perhaps when they met for the first time. Uh, Lodge was a great fan of uh, nautical history and uh, nautical affairs, having grown up uh, with a father who had a import-export business. And Lodge would frequently go to the port of Boston just as a young boy and watch these incredible clipper ships sail off into the horizon bound for Africa, Asia, other incredibly mysterious uh, ports of call. And Lodge was, was caught up uh, in that. Both men shared the belief that to pull a phrase uh, from uh, uh, TR's cousin, FDR, that the United States had a rendezvous with destiny, that it was destined to be to follow George Washington's lead in his farewell address, that the United States had a destiny for a grand expansion. Uh, the West, by the time uh, Lodge and Roosevelt reach manhood, has already been colonized. It's already been occupied. Uh, the West has been uh, closed, so to speak. And so where, where can one now go? Where can the United States now go? Well, abroad. That's the, the next destination uh, for the United States. And Lodge and Roosevelt also come together with that belief that the United States needs to have a, a, a great Navy. Uh, they need to have a foot in the Pacific theater uh, in order to achieve greater uh, economic power not to mention potentially uh, defensive power. There was always that belief that the United States uh, would be a sitting duck eventually for other European nations who had far more arms, a far more powerful Navy, and the United States needed to catch up to that. And Roosevelt and Lodge were determined uh, to see that uh, plan and idea come to fruition. It's interesting, I think, that you, you refer to Roosevelt as an amateur because I actually think that in recent years, his histories have fared a little bit better. I'm thinking here about Alexander Hamilton. Lodge writes a biography of Hamilton. And since we've had recently the Hamilton, uh, the theater production, the musical, uh, Hamilton's uh, or Lodge's Hamilton seems very out of step with, with modern audiences. But I couldn't help thinking about Hamilton throughout the reading of this book, because I think both men, Lodge and Roosevelt, they are Hamiltonians. And, and I mentioned, obviously, Lodge's biography. Roosevelt certainly admitted his affection for Hamilton. They dislike Jefferson. They mm -hmm. support federalism. Is this one of their chief you know, commonalities? Yes, I, I, I think so. I think as we, the other thing is we, as we think about it, uh, the Civil War is the other great commonality between uh, the two men. Both, of course, were too young to experience uh, life on the field of battle. Uh, neither father of TR nor of Lodge was able to participate. Uh, both men, however, did the best they could to support the war effort. But uh, as, as you know, uh, probably better than most, uh, Roosevelt never seemed to forgive his father for missing one of the great moments in history and spent his life showing uh, perhaps the spirit of his father that yes, you know, I can be successful on the field of battle. Uh, serving in war is there is no greater contribution to one's nation that one can make or indeed uh, a way of proving one's manhood more than uh, serving on the field of battle. Lodge really hated uh, the, conf the old Confederate uh, states. Uh, we see that, I believe, much later on when there's this conflict between the two over the idea of putting Judge Lurton uh, on, the, uh, on the Supreme Court. And Lurton, Horace Lurton, was uh, a, a Confederate uh, soldier. He hailed from the uh, southern part of the country. And I really believe that, that Lodge had, a, had, a, had an intense dislike uh, for any of those Southerners, be, them, be it uh, political or, or military or judicial. Of course, they were all Democrats, right, at the end of the day. And Lodge had a great hostility uh, towards the Democratic Party and uh, those who had been a part of the secessionist cause. I think that is such a great point about the Civil War. It was actually my next question was about how big this this you know the Civil War looms in the memory of Roosevelt and Lodge. I just want to give a shout out to 
Benjamin Wetzel, who's a friend of the show, has also written a biography of Roosevelt. He's re recently written an article in the Journal of the Gilded Age and Progressive Era about Roosevelt and the Civil War, in which he says that, you know, Roosevelt would have sort of seen the Civil War as not just writing the, the policies for his administration, but also his ideas for new nationalism, and later on his ideas around World War I. So I think it's, it's one of these critically important moments in the the legacy of uh, the Civil War is people like Lodge and Roosevelt, who are so vehemently anti-Confederate, as you put out. I mean, this is this is an absolute truth. I think that your book uh, does a great job of showing. The other thing that I think your your book does really well is showing the women in the lives of Roosevelt and of Lodge. They seem as central to the to you know to Lodge and Roosevelt, Nanny Lodge and Edith Roosevelt. What roles do they play? In shaping the nation's history, well, you know, I think, uh, and I was, I was very, I love uh, dynamic uh, characters of both genders, and 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 I, I think Nanny Lodge, as I've said uh, before, uh, is was my favorite character to write about. I absolutely thought she was, she was fabulous. I loved the fact that she. Uh, was a very kind of an intellectual woman who had gone to Wellesley, who had an audiographic as well as a photographic memory, who could quote Shakespeare and other uh, verse, uh, just uh, if anybody even brought it up. Uh, she also was someone who uh, was Lodge's, her husband's greatest literary critic, uh, Lodge, really cared about what Nanny thought of his writings and he would show her be the first person he she would he would show anything he wrote be it a speech be it an article be it a lecture if she didn't like it he'd rip it up and start again and there's one occasion where there was a speech that he was giving to a local Massachusetts group and I think she he had to write the speech three times before uh, she gave it uh, her okay uh, she was really somebody who um, I think kind of undersold herself in terms of promoting and pushing her husband's success. Corinne Roosevelt Robinson, who was TR's sister and her great friend, wrote to her and said, you know, I don't believe uh, Cabot, as he liked to be called, could have succeeded without you. And she said, no, 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 no. He would have been successful uh, regardless of, of me. And, and, and that's an interesting point. And I think you have to look at that point in the context of the age. Um, women like Nanny Lodge as some, as the, uh, another great Massachusetts, uh, other great Massachusetts women before her actually viewed themselves as wife, mother, Home, homemaker, someone, somebody like Mercy Otis Warren would essentially see herself in a similar way, despite Mercy Otis Warren being a great provocateur and satirist, she viewed herself as a wife and mother first. Her husband and children came first before anything uh, she did. And, and uh, Nanny always focused on her husband and his needs uh, before anybody else. Edith Roosevelt, another wonderful figure, really important in TR's life. Uh, many people argue that his first great love, uh, someone like Edmund Morris argues, Alice Roosevelt would have been a disastrous mate uh, for Theodore Roosevelt. She wasn't a woman of ideas. She wasn't particularly literary. She wasn't interested in, in, in sort of watching him or helping him and his great ambitions to succeed. Edith Roosevelt adored TR from the time they were young children, and she knew him perhaps better than he knew himself. And one example is when he was thinking about taking the vice presidency, something Lodge was urging on him, she was like, TR, this, Theodore, this is a disaster. It's, some, it's a position that would lock him away. He would be contained. There would be no way to use that great intellectual energy. And she believed, and rightly so, that he would fall into a depression and make life very difficult for himself and others. And that's precisely what happened. She really, along with Lodge, helped contain that extraordinarily unpredictable temperament and energy that drove Theodore Roosevelt. And without Edith Roosevelt by his side, um, it would have been a lot harder for him to succeed, I believe. 
Life is full of awesome what ifs and some not so much, like unexpected medical costs. That's why United Healthcare provides Health Protector Guard fixed indemnity insurance plans to supplement your primary plan and help manage out of pocket costs. Learn more at uh1.com. This is Paige, the co host of Giggly Squad, and I want to tell you about a company that I've been loving Olive and June. Olive and June gives you everything that you need for a salon quality manicure in one box. And if you break it down, it really comes out to $2 a manicure, which is absolutely insane. It's also so easy to get salon-worthy nails at home with Olive and June. The difference between how your nails used to look when you did them yourself and now with the Manny system is a complete game changer. The best thing about Olive and June, too, is it's a quick dry. Dries in about one minute, lasts for five days, and full coverage in up to one to two coats. Visit oliveandjune.com slash perfectmanny20 for 20% off your first system. That's oliveandjune.com slash perfectmanny20 for 20% off your first system. Everyone knows therapy is great for solving problems, but getting therapy has its own problems too, like finding the right therapist, fitting into their schedule, and of course, the cost. Well, BetterHelp can solve those problems. It's totally online and built around your schedule. It's surprisingly affordable too. Connect with a credentialed therapist by phone, video, or online chat, all from the comfort of your home. Visit betterhelp.com to learn more and save 10% on your first month. That's BetterHelp, H-E-L-P. Burrow is a furniture company known for timeless design and thoughtful construction and free shipping, and that extends to their outdoor collection. Their outdoor furniture is built to withstand the elements, featuring rust-proof stainless steel hardware, weather-ready teak, and quick-dry foam cushions. For Memorial Day, get 15% off your Burrow purchase at burrow.com acast and up to 25% off outdoor. That's up to 25% off outdoor furniture at burrow.com slash ACAST. Yeah, I think that's fair enough. And I, I, I think you do a great job of showing the rise. I mean, that's the sort of story of Theodore Roosevelt and, and Henry Cabot Lodge's rise has been covered, I think, extensively now. I mean, I think whether we're talking about Edmund Morris, who you mentioned, or, or others, I think where your book allows us to see some some of the other gray areas is around policies that the two men held and some of the, not only commonalities, but uh, disagreements that they had. And one of the things that I thought was interesting, and this is, uh, I was thinking about my, my friend, Mark Palin, an economic historian, who, who knows, he might be listening, he might enjoy this question, but Lodge and Roosevelt start off as free traders. And by 1896, they're Republican protectionists. How do they go through this conversion on the tariff question? How does that come about? Well, I think they both came to, to realize, I think at the heart of all of this, particularly with Lodge, every thought about Lodge, Lodge had was political. Every thought Lodge had was about how to preserve the uh, superiority in terms of an electoral point of view of the Republican Party. Tariffs were... Uh, during the 19th century, certainly. And I find myself thinking when one of the reasons I wrote the book was how similar so many of the ideas that dominated Lodge and Roosevelt's time seems to seem to affect our own time uh, today. Um, obviously, tariffs favored uh, the American working man. It was something that that uh, certainly the idea of, well, we don't, we'll, we'll cut out all foreign competition. We want our folks to succeed. And this was uh, an idea that, that really dominated uh, the Republican party. We see uh, the second election of Grover Cleveland. He deviates a little bit from this, loses uh, his, uh, his second, uh, the, the, after he wins a, a second time. But I really believe everything with Lodge and Roosevelt, as they move up through their careers, Henry Cabot Lodge is always thinking politically. I believe he would have been a marvelous strategist uh, if he were alive uh, today. And TR learns that from him. Uh, Rose Lodge tells Roosevelt early on, you've got to work within the party system. You've got to work within the party structure. Don't deviate from it because that's a road to nowhere. And that is the thing that I think really drove the break in 1912 because Lodge had spent his, you know, decades instructing TR, telling him, do this, don't do that. 
And Lodge was somebody who, you know, when you didn't listen to him, it, it upset him. There were other things that upset him too. But one of the things was, if you don't take his views seriously, you know, that's not good. And I think he felt really hurt uh, when this happened uh, in 1912. And of course, I'm sure we'll get to that later on. But I think politics drove everything with both men, more so with Lodge than with TR. Would you say that the politics drew, drove their foreign policy ideas? Because in some ways, I think foreign policy, which is something that they share in common, a view about America becoming a world power, is actually probably at the expense of politics. In other words, you have party leaders like McKinley who are saying, well, hang on, let's kind of restrict ourselves. And there's other Republicans that are saying, let's not take Cuba. Let's, you know, let's, you know, be, have a modicum of restraint here. But they promote an agenda from the 1890s in the Spanish-American War straight to the Great War, which mm -hmm. really is, is born out of conviction and not of politics. Would you agree? Yes. Yeah, 100%. 100%. Both men had, were, uh, they had this belief in American exceptionalism. This was what they were grounded in, this belief that the United States was a great nation. It its ideas and its founding documents were unique and special. And this philosophy needed to be spread, spread to all corners of the world to make uh, the globe more safe, more secure. And uh, I believe that I keep using this word destiny, and I don't think that's too much to say, but I think both men really believed that the U.S. had a great destiny to play in the world. That, I believe, is one of the things that drove Lodge's great uh, desire to prevent the League of Nations from occurring because he saw Woodrow Wilson as a man who was trying to undo all this work that Lodge and Roosevelt were trying to do to make the United States subservient as opposed to make it superior, as opposed to make it the leader of the world as opposed to a follower. And I think that was the thing that really drove them uh, throughout their relationship in terms of foreign policy. I, I want to come back to foreign policy. You mentioned the League of Nations. Naturally, we, we've got to close on that, and we have to cover a bit more ground before we jump all the way ahead to 1919. You mentioned Henry Adams, right? Let's come back to him, because one of the things that I think biographies should be, should be doing is uh, getting sort of getting the nuances. And Henry Adams seems like a good character to do that. He has mixed feelings about both Lodge and Roosevelt. So can you tell us a little bit about how his views on these two men change over time? Yeah, you know, Henry Adams, who I, I really loved writing about, and I, I'm sure uh, his letters have come up on your podcast occasionally uh, and his, his works, but really to get a, a sort of a, a fly on the wall of what the Gilded Age was like, I encourage everyone to read even a few of his letters, because Adams is one of the great correspondents, uh, I think, of, of all time. Um, he um, initially, Henry Adams, took Henry Cabot Lodge under his wing. Uh, he had been Lodge's uh, professor at Harvard. Uh, Lodge had reached out to uh, Adams on his honeymoon, asking him where he should go in terms of uh, profession. What should he do? Lodge had lost his father at a very early age. There was no paternal influence there. Henry Adams, in a way, became a paternal uh, influence uh, to Lodge, and he encouraged Lodge to become a historian. He introduced him uh, to the Republican Party, Republican politics, uh, various reformers uh, within the Republican Party, and uh, thought that Lodge would be a very good politician, uh, but was wary that Lodge would get sucked into the maelstrom of ego and pragmatism and, and, and do things that were completely opposite of what Adams believed uh, someone who represented the nation in Congress or the Senate uh, should do. And so when Lodge started to become more pragmatic, more, let's say, Machiavellian, uh, Henry Adams lost an enormous amount of respect uh, for Lodge. He adored a nanny. He adored the children. They, despite his dislike of, of Cabot, they took frequent trips together uh, to Europe. Uh, and, and Lodge really did love Henry Adams. He, he, you know, he tolerated the fact that 
that Adams disliked him, but I think he really uh, had a lot of loyalty uh, towards Henry Adams. Roosevelt, uh, I, I think, uh, appreciated Adams. Uh, Adams, I think, kind of always went up and down uh, with with TR. There was a lot of jealousy there. Um, I think Adams felt his life had had not been complete. He had not achieved the greatness that his his grandfather. Uh, John Quincy Adams and uh, his ancestor John Adams had achieved. He wasn't a counselor uh, to presidents. He wasn't an advisor uh, to presidents. And I think that really made him very bitter uh, in terms of being around TR. Uh, I think he thought uh, TR was an extremely capable man, but I feel like he just didn't like TR's personality. He hated the fact that he was such a, a, a kind of a uh, such an egotist and he was always talking and he he'd never shut up and there's a great moment in my book I think where they're sitting in the White House and 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 Henry Adams is having dinner and suddenly he says and suddenly we heard this blah 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 you know the entire time and, and it just drove me drove me crazy so um, Henry Adams was just uh, a, a wonderful figure but I think as somebody said who I was speaking to another historian I said, what would you think about sitting next to Henry Adams at dinner? And she said, well, I think I'd rather be next. I'd rather be across from him. Fair enough. And I think maybe what what we're getting to here, too, is that personalities clash. And when politics get involved, they get even messier. And that seems like a little bit the case between TR and and uh, and Lodge as well. Um, once once TR gets to the White House, there's the beginning of this clash as well, because um Lodge convinces Roosevelt to appoint Oliver Wendell Holmes as the next Supreme Court justice when Justice Gray is uh, stepping down, or I can't remember, does he die or does he retire? But uh, anyway, Oliver Wendell Holmes replaces Gray, and it seems all rather downhill, at least during the administration from there. How does their relationship deteriorate from Holmes and then into sort of conflicts between corporate regulation and, and lawsuits against trusts? How does it change? Well, I think the thing that's, that, that is very interesting is, is that before Roosevelt becomes president, he's very dependent on Henry Cabot Lodge. The correspondence between the two of them, Lodge is, uh, Roosevelt is always writing Lodge, asking for something. Do you know this person who could perhaps appoint me to this? If something opens up here, could you keep me in mind? I really need to come, I really need to come talk to you. I really need to spend a few minutes with you. Um, when TR becomes president, something Lodge had wanted for him, I don't want readers to uh, miss the idea that this is something that Henry Cabot Lodge had wanted. He believed Roosevelt could be president. He was saying this several years before uh, McKinley was assassinated. So when, when Roosevelt becomes president, Lodge is delighted. It's only later when Lodge realizes he can't necessarily, he does not have that carte blanche to the White House as, as so many uh, senators and congressmen and media folks thought. Um, I, I just wanna tell one little bit, there was a, a journalist that talked to Roosevelt soon after he became president and he asked the new president, Mr. President Roosevelt, how are you going to deal with Senator Lodge? because so many people believe you guys are so close, is it going to be difficult for you to sort of distance yourself from him and in terms of things like patronage and favors and other things? And Roosevelt looked at this journalist and said, no, 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 you don't understand. Lodge does not run me, I run Lodge. And I think that was a really uh, strong statement. And I think it also said that, you know what, uh, this junior relationship that many of you believe that Cabot and I have, well, that's over. And I'm going to do exactly what I want to do. And I still hope he'll help me, but we'll have to see. When Holmes is appointed, something that, again, something that Roosevelt was more than happy to do, uh, as Henry Cabot Lodge said, nobody pressures Theodore Roosevelt. That's just not something uh, that can happen. And uh, Roosevelt and Holmes had a long conversation. Uh, Roosevelt thought, well, he's a fellow Harvard man. Our views seem to uh, coalesce, and he probably uh, will be a terrific uh, addition to the court. Uh, when the uh, decision 
on the railroad trust uh, occurs and Holmes does not vote with the majority, Roosevelt is completely flummoxed. He doesn't understand how this could happen. Uh, already, he's a little bit agitated about it. He naturally blames Lodge for pushing this man on him, which of course is completely uh, untrue. Uh, and But there are other tensions as well. Lodge, uh, for all of his saying, well, I've come as far as I can, i.e. the Senate as far as I is as far as I can go. Lodge always wanted to keep his hand in the game. Uh, initially, when Lodge had first started in Congress and even before, he was very unhappy. He didn't was uncomfortable with the idea of patronage. Uh, Lodge was a fan of, of, of civil service reform. That's something that, that he and Roosevelt uh, both shared. But of course, uh, Lodge uh, was a political man, first and foremost, believed that uh, patronage was important to re-election. And he would ask Roosevelt, what about appointing this guy? What about appointing him? And Roosevelt literally said to uh, a friend of, of his, I've got to be very, very careful. I've got to hold Cabot at arm's length. I can't get this impression of impropriety. Uh, if I'm leaning too hard or leaning too much towards uh, Massachusetts. And this, this annoyed Lodge. I mean, he found it really irritating. And at one point, he reached out to Roosevelt to ask him to write a proclamation for the 200th anniversary of Brookline, Massachusetts. And Roosevelt gets this note. And literally a couple of days later, he writes this incredibly strong letter back to Lodge in which he says, my good man, please don't ever ask me to do something like this again. I get this from everybody. I don't need to get this from you. And Lodge, who I really don't believe expected something like that to come sailing across his uh, his desk, immediately writes back, oh, I was only kidding. Now Lodge didn't have much of a sense of humor and he had no sense of humor when it came to uh, politics or patronage. So I think he realized, okay, I need to back off or I could really damage this this friendship that I have. Yeah, I think that that Holmes situation is a really turning, it's a turning point. It's a turning point for Roosevelt, who's an accidental president. Um, and he, he then, you know, his next nomination is William Henry Moody, who he picks quite purposefully because uh, he knows exactly how Moody is going to vote. He is, as you say, no longer dependent on Lodge. He is his own man and makes that point. Uh, so I guess if their if their relationship deteriorate, deteriorates a little bit, Taft's presidency offers a little bit of a revival for it and then an eventual complete break. I was wondering if you could take us through the years 1910 to 1912, because they really are the sort of it's like this crescendo and then coda of their relationship. They come back together. They fall back apart again. Right. How does it happen? Yeah. You know, um, Lodge, uh, I think he admits later uh, after Taft is elected that he really would have wanted Roosevelt to have had a third term. Initially, he was glad that Roosevelt didn't have a third term, I think from a physical and mental point of view. I think he was concerned about uh, the energy that Roosevelt had put into the presidency and the belief that uh, it would affect his health. And I think it was, Lodge was happy that Roosevelt left uh, the presidency in a relatively uh, healthy manner. However, uh, William Howard Taft, who uh, Lodge knew uh, was not as close with as TR was, uh, both Lodge and Roosevelt were social animals. Uh, they loved going to dinner. They loved chatting. They loved uh, gossiping and, and having a nice time. Uh, Taft was the opposite. Taft was a very introverted, cerebral fellow who preferred the confines of his office as opposed to being uh, out in public. And when Taft becomes president, something uh, uh, his wife wanted uh, more than uh, Taft wanted, um, Lodge begins to watch the Taft administration 
with mounting concern. Roosevelt is off on his grand tour. He's in Africa uh, hunting white tigers and, and elephants uh, on uh, a uh, safari sponsored by the Smithsonian uh, Institution. And, and Lodge just finds Taft to be this, this anathema of a, of a figure who he literally tells Roosevelt at one point, this guy doesn't seem to know anything about politics. I'm, I'm amazed that for all of his time in public life, he seems to be completely ignorant about who to, will have to be on time for meetings, um, to uh, know who to speak with, uh, no, uh, you're out, he's out of town way too much. Uh, and, and he's just, uh, unhappy with the way the presidency is going. And Lodge is always thinking 10 steps ahead of everybody else. He's always thinking about midterm elections, about presidential elections, about perception, about the way a certain bill is, is going to go. And, and, Taft is just very complacent, very laid back, doesn't seem all that worried about anything. He he keeps people waiting for hours. He sees Lodge on occasion. He offered Lodge, Taft offered Lodge the opportunity to be Secretary of State. So for all of Lodge's complaining, if he had wanted to be more involved in the administration, he very easily could have been. Um, and so Lodge begins writing Roosevelt these incredibly lengthy descriptive letters, which are very kind of uh, uh, depressing and almost frantic in a way. And, 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 Rose, and Lodge is kind of metaphorically almost like a stalker because everywhere Roosevelt goes in Africa and Europe, there is a letter from Lodge that meets him at every uh, destination he arrives in. And he says, you know, uh, uh, Taft's opinion ratings are, are going down. I'm concerned about the midterms. Uh, you need to come back. The public wants you back. There's a void that you can fill. And Roosevelt doesn't want to come back. I mean, he's happy doing what he's doing. He's, he's resentful and angry uh, at Congress, uh, primarily at the Republican conservatives for blocking so much of the legislation that he uh, had proposed in his second uh, term, and he has no interest in, in in coming back. But Lodge is doing what he does so well, which is whispering in Roosevelt's ear, brushing his ego, saying, oh, the nation needs you. You need to come back. And Roosevelt comes back. But of course, what Lodge doesn't realize is that Roosevelt, who was never comfortable within the conservative confines of the Republican Party, uh, comes back and uh, has some new ideas. And the ideas that he has are these ideas that are, that are coming in from, uh, from the West, uh, that are coming in from, from the mind of fighting Robert La Follette in Wisconsin, ideas like primaries, ideas like the recall of judges, uh, ideas like referendums on, on issues, ideas with which Lodge finds completely abhorrent and, and foreign and contrary to uh, the Constitution. And so when Roosevelt starts evoking these ideas, Lodge is getting more and more disturbed over that. And he's trying to kind of calm Roosevelt down. He's not being very urgent about it, saying, yes, I know you've said these things on occasion, but Maybe you need to calm down on, on things like potentially uh, the idea of an individual's private property being seized for the good of the country, or this idea of a justice being recalled because he doesn't like, they, the public doesn't like an opinion. Think about what the legal uh, structure of the nation could be like and the kind of caliber of justices we might have. Roosevelt's not really listening to any of this. He's listening to other people. He's listening to Gifford Pinchot, his former uh, environmental czar, or James, uh, James Garfield, the son of the late president, uh, who's giving him some other uh, ideas. And all of this uh, comes to a head when we reach uh, 1912 and Roosevelt's decision to run against Taft uh, in uh, the, let's say, at the primaries, 
Uh, obviously, it's not the primary system that we know today. You had a number of primaries that primarily were out in the out in the West. You had other primaries as well, but you also had the power of political bossism still very much uh, in uh, in vogue. And essentially, what happens is Roosevelt reaches uh, the convention with Taft, with a bunch of delegates still needed. Uh, for either man uh, to get the nomination. Uh, the convention is stacked in Taft's favor. Lodge had helped Taft win the Massachusetts primary, something that Roosevelt may or may not have known. Uh, as it was, uh, Edith Roosevelt uh, really came to dislike Henry Cabot Lodge because Henry Cabot Lodge subsequently wrote to TR that he would not support him uh, in his challenge uh, to Taft, he wrote him a very heartfelt letter. He said, you have hurt me more than anybody else has. This is a letter, uh, Michael, by the way, that is in the published correspondence of uh, the Lodge, uh, chorus, Lodge uh, Roosevelt letters, correspondence that, and we may or may not want to talk about this, that Lodge uh, manipulated and edited uh, later on uh, uh, in his life. And it just shows you, I think, how Hurt Lodge was that he kept that letter for all to see in that correspondence. So there is this break then uh, between the two men who then for several months uh, barely correspond after writing one another letters, sometimes two or three a day. And... Um, Lodge believes the friendship between he and TR is more important than a primary. So he says, I will stay out of the primary. Uh, Roosevelt doesn't care. He is enraged uh, at Henry Cabot Lodge. He is really, really angry uh, at him. Um, he makes a few comments about a certain senator from Massachusetts who was responsible uh, for stealing uh, the convention uh, from him during his uh, bull moose campaign in 1912. Cabot, who is off campaigning for Taft, uh, says, you know, uh, to a reporter, I think people have had enough of Theodore Roosevelt. I mean, we're really tired of, of this constant uh, complaining. Uh, they meet each other occasionally. Henry Adams writes, well, if you expected some fireworks when the two got together at my dinner table, that didn't happen. Uh, and they really only come back together after Theodore Roosevelt is shot uh, during a speech during the 1912 campaign. Uh, Lodge writes some very heartfelt telegrams uh, to Roosevelt, which he says, you know, we are very worried about you and, and really hope you get better soon. And Roosevelt comes to realize, you know, I, I, I'm going to forgive this fellow. And he forgave Lodge uh, based on the fact that Lodge then uh, received an invitation to attend Theodore Roosevelt's daughter's Edith's wedding. Uh, interestingly enough, longtime friends, William Howard Taft, longtime friend Elihu Root were not invited. And Roosevelt even says, you know what, I understand Lodge's predicament. Root, however, uh, no way. Uh, he, you know, he really, really hurt me. Um, and, and they eventually come back together. And then Woodrow Wilson wins the election. And this cements that relationship back to where it was after 1884, this hatred, mutual hatred that both men have uh, for the former president of Princeton University and governor of New Jersey. I'm glad you mentioned the letters uh, between Roosevelt and Lodge. I'm going to come back to that later on, but I also just want to highlight the point that you make that somehow Lodge escapes the worst of TR's anger after 1912. Root never really recovers, and Taft, Taft and Roosevelt make friends around 1916, 1917, um, and they put their bygones, you know, sort of behind them. But uh, but that doesn't happen with Lodge. Lodge and him remain friends. And look, I could dwell on World War One. I. I think World War One is incredibly important. But actually, uh, yeah, I mean, it's incredibly important for their relationship. Lodge supports Roosevelt when Roosevelt wants to raise a regiment of troops. And, and obviously, they have both of this hatred for Wilson. But the thing that is more interesting to me is 
the end of the war, after the armistice, we know that Theodore Roosevelt is, you know, kind of on death's door at this stage. And Lodge knows that as well. But the Treaty of Versailles is something that brings them together ideologically, politically, um, and probably their closest since 1884, I would think. Why is it that the treaty does this? And, and how does their friendship shape the post-war order? Even if TR dies in 1919, how do their ideas continue to shape American foreign policy into the 20th century? Well, I think both men, um, you know, it's it's so interesting. Uh, if you look at the United Nations today, and perhaps this is sort of kind of the back end of your of your question, um, the United Nations today does have a, a, a military arm uh, to it. This is something that Theodore Roosevelt very much wanted. It was something that he believed was essential uh, to the success of the League of Nations. Without it, he believed that it was just a, a paper tiger, that it had no influence behind it. He was not uh, an idealist in terms of foreign policy. He believed that, you know, uh, nations uh, will naturally attempt to uh, be hegemonic uh, with one another. And ultimately, if the UN doesn't have any sort of military, or the League of Nations doesn't have any sort of military arm, then what good is it? Um, Lodge believed a similar view, but he also believed this idea that the U.S. should play second fiddle uh, to other nations is, was completely uh, foreign to him. Uh, Lodge was, uh, to use a current phrase, uh, an America first uh, man. Uh, and he believed that the United States should be uh, first and foremost at the helm of anything that is uh, in anything that occurs within uh, the international arena. Uh, both men believed that the U.S. should be a great superpower. And this is exactly what we have seen uh, today. Uh, I think it is interesting uh, that both men had, uh, Lodge had what we now refer to as this Wilsonian idealism, this idea that the United States should, the idea should sweep from uh, the United States should sweep the world, should be adapted by other societies. It could make the globe more secure, more sustainable, et cetera. And of course, we saw that with situations like the Iraq war and Afghanistan and other things where we attempted to adapt uh, kind of a United States uh, vision of, of what a nation should be. And uh, this didn't work. Um, and I, I think Lodge uh, and, and Roosevelt both had uh, similar ideas, this imperialist attitude uh, that neither one uh, ever lost, but both men believed in the greatness of the United States, that it was an exceptional nation and it needed to drive uh, the world. And I think those ideas still very much exist uh, today. Yeah, I mean, that's I, had, I hadn't even thought of that. I mean, I think there's, a, there's certainly the through line. There's interesting ways... America first or safer democracy, whether they're the same thing or not, I don't I don't think they are. But I mean, I do think that there is a through line, certainly the idea around a uh, an alliance, a military alliance was something that Theodore Roosevelt believed in. Lodge, I suppose one of his big contentions is, as you pointed out, that he was a big constitutionalist and his worry was that the Constitution wasn't really being serviced in the League of Nations agreement. Whether he would think that about the United Nations, I think, is an interesting question. But I, I want to finish on your, your point about the letters, because well, let, I tell you what, let's put you at the heart of your own book. I mean, you are the author, so let's put yourself there. You've gone with the title Rough Rider and Professor. There is a slight tone of, well, Rough Rider maybe gives off the vibe of, well, you, I mean, you use these words. You call Roosevelt self-centered and reckless at times. Lodge comes up, off much more balanced in this. But as you point out, Lodge actually changes the historical record, changes the letters that he wrote. So, I mean, what's what's supposed to be our estimate of Lodge and Roosevelt at the end of your book? Is it is it the sort of self-centered and reckless Roosevelt and the balanced Lodge, or, or is there more to it that you want to share with us? No, I think, you know, I think both men were, you know, we, we, we have, we've been, we have this, there's that converse conversation going on today about how you judge historical figures and uh, the context of today. And I think both men were products of their time. I mean, both men could be very impulsive as we saw with, with Lodge punching that constituent in the face because he 
He called him a, a coward because of his desire to follow Wilson and in, in his support of, of, of World War One. Uh, there is very much this, uh, we talk a lot now today about this masculinity uh, uh, issue and Roosevelt very much was uh, that. Both men were very competitive with with one another, Roosevelt much more so. With with Lodge, you know, there are so many examples of this of Roosevelt out out in the West writing Lodge. Uh, oh, I've done this. I've captured this outlaw. Roosevelt writing about his experience fox hunting. Well, you know, I always like to pay the piper occasionally if before I have a good dance. You know, crashing to the ground, breaking a couple of limbs. Lodge telling Roosevelt all the fabulous people he's hanging out with uh, over in London. Uh, in the 1890s, Roosevelt responding, well, uh, I guess I'm really the only person who's the only working politician uh, among us, you know, so there was this, this, this back and back and forth, I think there was a genuine, I, I think this really on some levels was a real, a tremendous camaraderie uh, among these two men, they really adored one another, I think Lodge would do, have done anything for Theodore Roosevelt. And I suspect Theodore in, in, in some levels may have felt the same way, but of course, Roosevelt uh, believed that, you know, uh, the presidency and integrity and all of this sort of thing were really important. He wasn't willing to uh, do swap favor for favor uh, with Lodge. But I think the two men, you, you really wouldn't have one certainly in terms of the acceleration to the presidency uh, for Theodore Roosevelt without Henry Cabot Lodge. And I feel one of the reasons I wrote the book was that every narrative you read about uh, T.R. Lodge is there. He's there, right? But not really there. Uh, you don't get a sense that he's such an integral part of that relationship. And that was the thing that I'm... I, 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 I came to realize after I wrote the book that I hope comes out. I don't have a, it's not my intention to sort of rehabilitate Henry Cabot Lodge because obviously in high school, one was taught, oh, Lodge was responsible for the death of Woodrow Wilson. I think he's a much more, more of a complex figure, much more emotional figure and thoughtful figure than, than we get a, a sense of. And I think he and TR really match up very, very well. And there are tons of commonalities uh, they have with one another, not just politics, not just foreign policy, but a love of history and a love of sports and a love of competition and socializing and drama and literature and so many other things. All right, Lawrence, I'm going to have to put a finer point on it. You mentioned uh, Henry Adams and dinner parties. Who would you rather have dinner with? Lodge or Roosevelt? Oh, I think I'd probably have have rather have dinner with Roosevelt because I, 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 I think you know Lodge could be very difficult, and uh, you know I I just don't know how that would he he might be rather uh, unappealing to sit next to. I think Nanny would have been fun too, though. Fascinating character. Look, it's a it's an interesting take on two dominant figures in the Gilded Age and Progressive Era. Lawrence, I can't thank you enough for joining us on the show and, and giving up your time and sharing the book. Thank you, Michael. It was a real, real pleasure. And I, knowing that you're a Roosevelt scholar, it was wonderful to, uh, to get in front of you and hear your thoughts about the, the book. Well, that's all we have time for. Thanks for listening. You can follow the Gilded Age and Progressive Era on Twitter or on my website, michaelpatrickcullinane.com. Please consider subscribing or reviewing the podcast wherever you listen because it really makes a big difference and helps direct others to the show. I hope you'll join me again for the next episode. Mom deserves the best, and there's no better place to shop for Mother's Day than Whole Foods Market. They're your destination for unbeatable savings. From premium gifts to show-stopping flowers and irresistible desserts, start by saving 33% with Prime on all body care and candles. Then get a 15-stem bunch of tulips for just $9.99 each with Prime. Round out Mom's menu with festive rosé, irresistible berry chantilly cake, and more special treats. Come celebrate Mother's Day at Whole Foods Market. Hey, it's Danny Pellegrino from Everything Iconic. Ready to upgrade your style game without blowing your budget? 
Check out Quince. They've got all the good stuff, shirts and polos, activewear and fine leather goods, all at 50 to 80% less than other high-end brands. And the best part? They're all about safe, ethical and responsible manufacturing. Get that luxury vibe without the luxury price tag. Hit up quince.com slash upgrade for free shipping and 365-day returns on your next order. That's quince.com slash upgrade. Planning for your next trip? Elevate your travel style with Quince. Quince has all the jet-setting essentials you'll want for your next getaway, like European linen, premium luggage options, buttery soft Italian leather bags, and so much more. And it's all priced at 50 to 80% less than similar brands. Plus. Quince only works with factories that use safe and ethical manufacturing practices. Pack your bags with high-quality essentials you'll be wearing for vacations to come with Quince. Go to quince.com pack for free shipping and 365-day returns.